Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. I'm Isaac, your host. Glad you're joining with us today. If you're a Christian, then you should know this. And if you're not a Christian, then this will be good for you to know. Um, after Jesus, who is you know the main character, you could say, of Christianity, after he rose from the dead and before he went up to heaven, he hung out for 40 literal days with the disciples and others. Now, it was during this time that Jesus gave what we as Christians call the Great Commission or you know, the thing you ought to do, like this is my command to all Christians. Uh, you can read this in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a huge statement. He goes on, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the command for every single Christian. Now, in order to make a disciple, the gospel must first be explained, right? Someone is saved when they believe in the good news about Jesus. So the initial sharing of the gospel we call evangelism. We know this, right? But I fear, and I could be wrong, but I fear that too many Christians know too much about evangelism yet have lived too little of it. And I would also imagine that too many non-Christians have heard the gospel through older people, uh, the internet, and books rather than their peers. Why is this? You know, you may fear the task of evangelism. I get it. It can be a daunting task for sure. But look at that promise Jesus makes at the end of his command. I am with you always to the end of the age. We can evangelize. We can share the good news about Jesus and help us do this in our skeptical, post-truth, post-church world, we talk with Dr. Sam Chan, someone who's been doing evangelism for years. So here's our conversation. With me today is Dr. Sam Chan. Sam is a theologian, he's a preacher, author, evangelist, not done, ethicist, <laughs> cultural analyst, and medical doctor. So it's great to have you with us today, Sam. Good to be here, Isaac. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I, I should let our listeners know, if you've been listening to, with us for a while, that uh, Sam is our first Australian guest. So I just want to say, Sam, like that is a, that's a big privilege. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure. And we've worked out because of the international dateline, I'm in the future. I'm actually <laughs> tomorrow. I'm one day ahead of you. That is incredible. I, I, my brain does not fathom that. <laughs> I know. You should ask me what the share market prices are going to do tomorrow. That's true. I can tell you whether they go up or down. <laughs> I know. Wouldn't it be good if it did work that way? <laughs> too bad. Too bad. Um, Sam, let me just ask first. Uh, I don't really know you. A lot of people might not know you. Um, yeah, who who are you? Maybe a little bit of a short testimony. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Hong Kong, but as a baby, my parents moved to Australia. So I grew up in Australia. But then I did graduate and PhD studies in Chicago at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Went back to Sydney and then worked uh, teaching in what you guys would call a seminary, teaching theology, ethics, preaching, and evangelism. And uh, somewhere in that journey, I also was a doctor before I went to seminary. So these days, I'm bivocational. I, I spend time in Christian ministry 
giving talks about Jesus, especially to the non-believing public. But also I work one day a week as a doctor, as a surgical assistant. All I do is hold the leg for the surgeon to operate on, like a trained monkey could do what I do. <laughs> the nurses look at the surgeon and think, yeah, I can see how that took you know six years of medical school. But they look at me and think, how on earth does that take six years of medical school? Well, that is me, the surgical assistant. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really good. And I guess, how did you come to faith? Would you, I guess you just grew up in a Christian home? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in a Christian home, so I knew about Jesus for as long as I can remember. And so for those people who grew up in a Christian home, that would sound quite familiar. But, you know, there are certain key moments in your life. I would say one key moment was when I was about 16, we had a chaplain at our school, and he got a systematically reading the Bible and I got to read the book of Romans, like properly, start to finish. And I think that's when justification finally clicked. So even though you grow up in a church, you go to Sunday school, I think I still thought it was salvation by works until I was 16 and this guy opened up the book of Romans for me. So that was a really, really key moment. Another key moment would be when I was in my late 20s working as a doctor and I had to make a, a decision to stay in full-time medicine or I had opportunities to use giftings uh, to, to preach and teach about Jesus. And I thought, you know, you can worship God as a doctor, or, but I had this opportunity. So I had to really struggle with, well, where is my identity and, and status? Is it in being a doctor or can I let that go and just find my identity and status in Jesus? So again, it comes back to, you know, the book of Romans. Jesus is perfect, so I don't have to pretend to be perfect. You know, he's my status, he's my successor. I don't have to look for it in all the wrong places. So that they, they, they would be the key moments in my life. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Sam, I recently came across your newer book now, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, How to Make the Unbelievable News About Jesus More Believable. And when I came across it, uh, I think it was in an email pop-up from a book publisher. I, I saw it first, but it excited me because... I really do sense a lack of evangelism in my own life and also in the life of my peers. I just don't really see it happening a lot, <laughs> maybe behind closed doors, but I'm not seeing it really publicly. So the title already of your book explains in a sense what you're writing about. So perhaps you could just kind of tell us why you've written this book on evangelism now. Yes, it's a provocative title, but I captures how all Christians feel because we're in this dilemma. It's in our DNA to want to tell our friends about Jesus, but at the same time, we don't feel equipped. And when well-meaning pastors say, tell your friends about Jesus, we feel like we would if we could, because <laughs> deep down we sense, you know, the tools and methods we were taught 10 or 20 years ago just don't have that same bite or traction now because the world has changed. I say we're 21st century, post-Christian, post-reached, post-churched. So a lot of things don't work anymore. So then I thought, because I used to teach in a seminary with a big missiology department, why don't we pretend the Western world is unreached? Like what tools, what methods would the missiologists apply if they had to be missionaries and evangelize Canada, North America, Australia, the UK and Europe. What would we do for our Western world? So then I applied all the tools of missiology, contextualization, cultural analysis, storytelling, and applied it to our Western world. And you know, I and and then rather than see our change world as a threat to evangelism, see it as a bright new world with new opportunities to try things we've never tried before. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I want to get into some of those 
kind of specific tools in a moment, but you mentioned just just a few seconds ago uh, about, you know, the old ways. And I think for many millennials mm. and perhaps others as well, the, you know, the quote unquote traditional forms of evangelism that maybe we saw in the 50s, 60s or, or, or so, for a lot of us, we actually don't know what those were. So I'm wondering if you could actually explain what they were and why they don't work in today's context. Yes, I am old enough. This staggers people. I'm old <laughs> enough to have done university campus evangelism, both in the 20th century and the 21st Look century. <laughs> like I was on a university campus in the 1980s. That blows people away. <laughs> and I used to go around with a set of talks where I could prove Christianity was true, like on university campuses. And they really, really worked well in the 1980s and the 1990s. But there was a shift in the 2000s. I still remember being in Missouri, USA, or Missouri, as they say, Missouri, <laughs> with the same sort of talks. And the audience could not have been more bored, more disengaged. <laughs> oh, yes. And I saw more eye rolls that day. And I thought, <laughs> something has changed. So I wow. talked to my... PhD supervisor Graham Cole at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and we broke it all down like uh, in the 20th century it was much more evidence-based people wanted proof prove to me the Bible's true prove to me Jesus rose from the dead whereas in the 21st century it's much more about looking for meaning purpose authenticity what is real what works it's a pragmatic form of truth also Timothy Kelly explains this really, really well. In the 20th century, the, the baby boomers, believe it or not, were quite duty-bound, uh, you know, and, and believed in traditions and honor. So they had laws they had to obey. So part of evangelism was to prove to them that you had broken laws. If you asked them why they would go to heaven, they would say, because I'm a good person. And so part of evangelism was to demonstrate, no, you're not good. You've broken a law. You've broken all the laws. You're not going to heaven. You need Jesus. But in the 21st century, people don't believe in laws. They're arbitrary, cruel social constructs imposed upon us by authority figures. And so when we evangelize them, uh, our friends, we prove to them we're the bad guys, we're the oppressors. We're trying to impose arbitrary laws upon them, play power games. Instead, their narrative is, I need to be real. I need to be true to myself. I need to be brave enough to ignore what other people tell me, e.g. the church, and just be who I really, really am. And if you were to ask them why God will let you into heaven, and they say, well, why wouldn't God let me into heaven? He has to accept me for who I am. And if he won't accept me for who I am, I don't think I want to be with his God anyway. So it's a very different thing. And uh, in the 20th century, again, it's hard to make believe, but believe it or not, the people were way more churched than we give them credit for. I remember when I was a boy in Sunday school, in a class of about 10 children, there were only like two Christians and eight were non-Christians because non-Christian parents would send their kids to Sunday school so they could pick up values and religion. And so the non-Christian generation in the 20th century were way more churched then we give them credit for. So someone like a Billy Graham could come up and do a crusade and give them a 20-minute Bible talk and there was enough foundation for them to understand. And then you could push them to a ta-da moment. Do you want to give your life to Christ? And they would. But now we're so post-church, so post-reached, there's just not enough of a biblical framework for them to even understand what we say in a 20-minute Bible talk. And so now it's much more of a journey 
into belief where bit by bit the pieces fall into place and there's this moment where they arrive. So it's, I think if you're looking at a, I mean, God does miracles. People will convert in a 20-minute talk, I'm sure. But if you ask most people what, you know, that's uh, why they believe, they say that 20-minute talk came at the end of a two- or three-year journey into belief. That's so good. Thank you for kind of going into detail there. I really enjoyed that. So pretty much you're telling me, though, in a sense, that it would be a miracle if I brought in my, you know, my four spiritual laws tracked into a university campus today and just gave it to someone. It, it's not going to have the same effect. Yes, totally. So again, God will do miracles, but yeah. <laughs> he'll be almost working despite your four right. spiritual laws tracks, not because of it. And my PhD supervisor, Graham Cole, again, big shout out to him. He says the very opening premise, you know, there are laws that govern the universe. They won't even give you that opening premise. And what we forget for most of the evangelism tracks in the 20th century, the very first line actually began with common ground where they would nod their heads and say, yes, there are laws that govern the universe or bridge to life would be saying, you're a good person. You want to be good. You want to get to God. Uh, whereas people won't give you that opening premise now that they're not trying to be good, trying to get to God as in bridge to life. And no, they don't believe in laws that govern the universe as per four spiritual laws. Yeah, no, that's so good. Now, Sam, you, you address in, in your book things like contextualization, cultural hermeneutics and storytelling in reference, obviously, to evangelism. So I'm wondering if you could give us just a brief explanation of how those things kind of work. And again, like we don't have tons of time, so just sort of in a brief snapshot and then how they're, they're applied, though, to evangelism. Yeah, contextualization. I think Timothy Keller sums it up the best. You've got to enter their storyline first and then challenge their storyline and then give them Jesus to fulfill their storyline. So get them nodding their heads first. We see it with Paul in Athens in Acts 17. He's distressed by their idols and he could have come in like Jesus did with a whip in the temple. He could have come in saying, you're obeying idols, you're wrong, you've broken all the commandments. Instead, he, he enters their storyline and says, you have a lot of idols. And they would have nodded their heads and said, yes, we do. You are very religious. They would have gone, yes, we are. So he's got them nodding their heads. Then he uh, challenges their storyline. But you have an idol whose name you don't know. Then he gives them Jesus to fulfill that storyline. Well, let me tell you about the God you don't know who you should be worshipping. So we could do the same with our postmodern Western friends. We could say something like, you're looking for meaning. And they would go, yes, we are. And then we could challenge it by saying, well, if you're just atoms and molecules, another species of life on this planet, that any talk of meaning, purpose or hope is really your arbitrary social construct. But if there's a God who gives us a bigger storyline to live for and someone else to live for, e.g. Jesus, now you do have the meaning, purpose and hope that you're looking for. Or you could enter this storyline and says, you're looking for freedom. And they would say, yes, we are. We are looking for freedom. And then you could challenge it. But you're not free. Whatever you live for owns you and destroys you and is making you less happy. And then you can give them Jesus. You know, Jesus says the truth will set you free. And that's because with Jesus, we get to be who God wants us and made us to be, and now we're truly free. And so that's how you enter and contextualize to someone's storyline. That's so good. And, you know, as you, as you say that, though, Sam, I'm thinking, how do you keep, you know, in a sense, up to date with the storyline of those that aren't holding your same Christian worldview? 
Yes. So when I used to teach at a seminary, I had to read the canon of Christian authors because my students always want to know what I thought of Carson or Van Hooser. But now I'm interacting in a very evangelistic ministry. I have to know the canon of non-Christian authors. What are my non-Christian friends reading? So because I work one day a week as a doctor, the kinesiologist is always reading a book. Like I hate to break it to you, but while you're asleep in operation, the kinesiologist no. <laughs> is not sweating over your you know, monitor. He is actually either doing it or she is doing a crossword or reading a book. <laughs> so I then ask the kinesiologist, what are you reading? And I find out what the non-Christians are reading. I get into podcasts. I love This American Life. I love The Moth. Um, uh, I, I like Freakonomics. So I like that the Gimlet Media podcast canon I get into. Then I look at the New York um, top 10 bestseller list and see what people like that are reading. And like John Ronson, So You've Been Shamed, David Brooks, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, Karen Armstrong, Fields of Blood. And bit by bit, you start working out because they all reference each other. Uh, and here's the other thing. I try, I subscribe to The New Yorker for one year. And I don't know how anyone reads The New Yorker. The articles <laughs> are so long. And the cartoons, I hate to say it, they are not funny. I don't get the cartoons. So anyone who says they read The New Yorker and they like the cartoons, they're pretending to be highbrow. Like, oh, yes. I, they are bluffing. I, I, I cancelled the subscription. I just watched a pile of New Yorkers stack up on my desk, unread, just making me feel bad. Oh. So I just want to put it out there. Anyone who says they read The New Yorker <laughs> is pretending. You do not have to read The New Yorker to stay good. in touch. Okay, that's good. Actually, you know what, though? Sam, I appreciate what you just said there, not just about The New Yorker, but everything, because it's very, it's very practical. I like that. That's actually, that's actually really helpful. As we're kind of approaching the end of our conversation, I, I'm wondering if we could just kind of look at you in your own life here. Can you think of an evangelistic moment in your life when you perhaps were faced with sharing the gospel to someone and you were either in, maybe in fear, in doubt, or you weren't confident? And I'm just wondering what, what happened. Oh, wow. Like, I have got, I've got two extremes in my evangelistic world. I, I have Uber rides where I've got 20 minutes to share the gospel to a stranger. And believe it or not, that always goes way better than you think it will. But the scary ones were when I used to be a flatmate with three non-Christian doctors. And that really was, you're stuck with them. <laughs> and so it's going to be really, really awkward if you share the gospel with them and they don't want to believe. And that really was where you had to invest time and and demonstrate a lifestyle of two to three years so that that was even more scary and then eventually they would actually ask so what does a christian believe and i reckon my heart was racing faster at those moments than they would have been sharing the gospel with an uber driver and i i still remember to this day how i shared i said to the to my friend well you know how you and i are both single right now and we're just going from accommodation, rental accommodation to rental accommodation. And we're just sitting here on a Friday night, lonely, single, feeling sorry for ourselves, listening to jazz and the blues. <laughs> um, and really deep down, we just wanted to meet a special someone and finally be able to settle down, stop wandering in a place we would call home. I said, that is what Christianity is like. There's a God who loves us, who made us. We're wandering. We're restless because we haven't settled down with him. He, but if we come to him, he sent his son Jesus to bring us to him. We can settle down with God in a place he calls home. And I think that was the scariest but 
the most special moment of evangelism for me. And, and my friend didn't reject it, but it just, he just let it settle. But months and years later, he came to faith. And I think, uh, so I think that was a special and most scary moment. And believe it, who would have thought? It's with your flatmates and your friends and family where it's most scary, whereas Uber drivers and people next to you on a plane are scary because you're not going to see them again. Right, so it right. really, really doesn't matter. Absolutely. No, that's good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, Sam, from your studies, uh, obviously, in the Bible and in culture uh, that you've done for your book, but also just your ministry, what would you say is your best response to a young adult Christian who who doesn't engage with evangelism because they're they're in this fear of you know confronting someone with with this and they're just maybe they're they have the fear of man. Yes, well, I say break it down into baby steps. So I have the same fear when I see a pile of dirty dishes in the sink and it just looks too global, too big, and my wife says. Break it down into <laughs> steps. Start with a fork, do a cup, bit by bit. And I say evangelism. It's too global. It's too scary. I say, no, just break it down into baby steps. How about just don't worry about how will I tell my friend about Jesus. Just say, can I take my friend out for a coffee? Let's do coffee. Coffee is a safe invitation. It's public space. You're only going to talk about the weather and the sport. It's 10 or 20 minutes. But if you do that often enough, then do a meal like lunch or dinner together somehow and bit by bit that's private space the conversations now move to values worldviews you have one or two hours and then we get to worldviews ask them questions like how were you raised what religion did your parents have and get them talking and just listen and listen and listen uh, and without trying to work out how to respond, how to get your story in. And sooner or later, they would say to you, well, how were you raised? What's your religion? And, and then, then now you can share your story. They can't argue against your story. And then if they listen to your story, you, I mean, and then you can say, hey, just while I've got you, can I share a story about Jesus? And I love telling the story of Jesus turning water into wine. That's become my favorite <laughs> one because no one has a category for that story. Right. Not even the Christians. Because I say, he turned, he, the guests had enough to drink. They were drunk. And he gives them more wine. In Australia, that's illegal. You lose your... <laughs> Liquor license if you did that. But he's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, giving people more wine. Why would he do that? And people have no answer. And right. I, so I say, break it down to baby steps. If I get that far, I say, well, why would Jesus turn water and wine? I say, because he's actually trying to give us an image of what life with him would be like both in this life and the life to come. So if you think that by following Jesus, you will miss out, it's the opposite. By not following Jesus, you will miss out. And and so, I don't know, I just find that a really seamless way to, to enter the gospel. And, you know, with an Uber driver, that's 20 minutes. But if it's friends or family, well, I can understand how you do coffee a few times, do a few meals, and you're just investing more time. And that's where I argue my book, Hospitality, is actually a key component. So we've atomized evangelism into how do I tell my friends about Jesus? How do I get the courage to do this at a lunchtime talk? No, 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 no. Think about hospitality first, because it's everywhere in the Bible. And suddenly you realize, wow, for evangelism to work, it actually presupposes hospitality. So begin with hospitality and see where you can go from there. Yeah, no, that's huge. And that last point, I, that's what I was thinking in my head, that evangelism doesn't start with just going to your friend and saying, hey, let me talk to you no. about Jesus. It starts with the hospitality. I think that's that's crucial. That's key. 
the last thing here, Sam, should we be thinking of evangelism as a of a way of life or more as a specific task for a period of time, if you know what I mean? So, you know, the youth groups, we're going to go do an evangelism thing, or should I be thinking about it all the time, like it's a way of life? Uh, yeah, it's definitely a lifestyle change. And the analogy I give is every New Year's Eve, we all make the same New Year's resolution. You know, this year I'm going to I'm going to get fit. This is the year I'm going to get fit. I'm going to eat less. I'm going to exercise more. So we sign up for a gym. We get up at five in the morning. We go for a run and it stops after a few weeks because it's unsustainable because it was an event we shoehorned into our life when fitness needs to become a lifestyle change. And evangelism is the same. Like It can't be events that we shoehorn into our life or our church calendar. It is those things but it can't only be those things. You need a lifestyle DNA change where you become evangelistic. It just becomes, you know, how you live, eat, drink, and move. It's just your lifestyle. You become evangelistic. And what would you say is the the one thing, as we just wrap up here, that we can hear, if if people are listening right now on the radio or on podcast, what would you say is the first step to make evangelism, like make this life change into evangelism? I say merge your universes. As Christians, we have two universes of friends, a universe of Christian friends and a universe of non-Christian friends. We keep them separate. Deliberately, proactively find a way to merge your universes, to matchmake your non-Christian friends with your Christian friends. And the gospel will become more believable as your non-Christians have more and more Christians in their life. So tonight, if you want to invite you know, someone over to watch sports on TV, think about, well, how can I get a non-Christian and a Christian in the room at the same time watching sports with me? I say merge your universes and creative ways to do hospitality. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for your time and your your wisdom today. It's been so good. If you're listening and you're interested in what Sam's been sharing, uh, then you should go pick up his new book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. You can probably find that. You, I know you can find it on Amazon, and I can also post the proper links on the episode podcast page. Also, check out EspressoTheology.com, where Sam blogs, and also CityBibleForum.org, in which Sam is a speaker for that. But anyways, thanks again, Sam, and I hope to talk to you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Isaac. That was a blast or a hoot, as you might say. <laughs> I don't know if we say hoot in, in Canada, but you know <laughs> what, we'll you? just go with that. <laughs> Someone somewhere says it. You know, before Jesus went up to heaven, he told his disciples to go and make disciples. Now, to make a disciple means the gospel must have been shared, heard, and believed. And this is what evangelism is. It's the sharing of the gospel in many different styles and contexts, and obviously with the same core message and truths. Sadly, I think that many of us Christians know that we need to evangelize, yet we haven't really made evangelism into an everyday or even every week or even once a month priority or practice in our lives. I'm so thankful that we had the chance to have talked with Dr. Sam Chan to really help us through what it looks like to evangelize in a skeptical world. And I hope you've been served and challenged this week to make evangelism a greater priority in your life. Anyways, we hope you join us again next week as we get to hear Andy Crouch, who is with us, to talk about how we, as Christians, can use technology wisely. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. 
We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hi, Ben Lowell, Director of Good News Global Media's In Doubt. If you listen to today's program, you're either a young person looking to understand how the Bible speaks to current issues of life, faith, and culture, or you're someone passionate to see young people grow in their walk with Jesus and understand the Bible. We want to thank you for being with us and encourage you to touch base by emailing info at indoubt.ca or in the U.S., info at indoubt.com. Also, we want to let you know that Indoubt is a ministry that only exists through the support of donors. So every gift of any amount means so much. For more information, visit indoubt.ca or in the U.S., indoubt.com.